This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Climate disasters have a hefty cost. The biggest is human life. But there's an economic price, too. In 2021, structural damages from wildfires, floods, and other climate-related disasters totaled $145 billion. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Climate change means these disasters are becoming more destructive and more frequent. Now homeowners are paying the price for the increased risks. Between 2021 and 2022, 90% of homeowners saw an increase in their home insurance premiums, according to a Policy Genius report. The states that saw the steepest price increases were areas prone to severe weather, including Arkansas, Texas, and Colorado. Earlier this month, Colorado Democrats introduced a bill that would offer homeowners state-run insurance if private companies refuse to cover them. The move comes in response to growing wildfire risks in the state. Many states already have similar programs, but state insurance is often more expensive and offers limited coverage. What right do people have to homeowners insurance, particularly in high-risk areas? Is insurance the answer to a worsening climate problem? And at what point does someone decide the price of living in a place is just too high? We'll answer those questions and get into so much more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be right back. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming Roy Wright. He's the president and CEO of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. That's a nonprofit scientific research organization. He's also a former FEMA official. Roy, it's great to have you. Great to join you. Also with us from Montana is Kamiko Barrett. She's a research and policy analyst at Headwater Economics. That's a nonprofit research group working to improve community development and land management decisions. Kimmy, welcome. Pleasure to be here. And Jeremy Porter. He's the head of climate implications at the First Street Foundation. That's an organization focused on defining climate risk. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Roy, the bill in Colorado hasn't passed yet, but what do state-run insurance programs look like in the states that already have them? There have been programs like this um, going back to the 60s. Um, 
These programs are insurers of last resort, sometimes referred to as fair plans, fair access to insurance requirements. And says if you can't get insurance in the private market amongst all of those who are running ads in um, the sports shows that we're watching, um, that you will have access to that. And so you go to the southeast, these programs um, are dealing with hurricane risk. It's called Florida Citizens, Louisiana Citizens. There's Underwriters Associations in the Carolinas, Alabama, and Mississippi. Out in California, uh, there is a program that goes back to the late 60s, initially focused on uh, urban contexts uh, that had difficulty uh, getting insurance. But after the catastrophic fires uh, in 2017 and 18, uh, the program now primarily focuses on wildfire risk. And so we look at this kind of collection of places by which this practice of giving someone an insurer of last resort. Um, Colorado has not needed that up to this point, and their legislation that is moving through uh, is contemplating what that might look like uh, should they need that in their marketplace. We got this email from Rebecca who says, we have a beautiful weekend home in Sisters, Oregon. Our insurance company dropped our coverage last year due to the high wildfire risk in our area. So our broker suggested Oregon Fair Plan Association, which offers cut rate coverage at less than half the value of the home. It's a risk, but better than nothing. We've also contracted for a grant through the USDA to do forest fire remediation on the property. Whether this affects our insurance rates or not, it's the right thing to do. Roy, why is state-run insurance often more expensive? even though it offers less coverage than private insurance. Right. So these programs uh, that are through these associations um, uh, that are supported by legislation, and in every instance, uh, it is still an insurance program. There's no state money necessarily behind it. Um, But there is a risk bias. So the people who are engaging in that kind of insurance um, are the highest risk. Uh, they already are at a point by uh, which their concerns are uh, already driven some of the changes in terms of the insurance that's provided to them. And so if the risk is higher, the price is going to be higher. But as that emailer uh, referenced, in order to help address some of those costs, oftentimes um, it's a simpler kind of coverage. And so some of those added on layers um, that we would become accustomed to from a customer service perspective uh, may not be included just as a way to keep um, the insurance premium at a lower price. Homes in high-risk areas saw some of the highest increases in their insurance premiums last year. Jeremy, what determines whether an area is considered high-risk? So there are a couple of different ways in which risk is is determined. We have have some public-facing approaches that we use that come from FEMA, that come from the Forest Service, uh, that come from some other entities that, that have become sort of the de facto ways in which we understand risk oftentimes. Those are tied to things like uh, the 100-year flood zone, for instance, in FEMA's, in FEMA's case. Uh, the, the, the primary uh, issue with, with taking those as metrics associated with risk is that they're one way of looking at, at risk. And there are, risk is a complicated matter. Risk doesn't just happen in one in 100-year floods. There is also high likelihood tidal flooding that's not as impactful, or 50-year floods, or 20-year floods, all of these that end up occurring relatively often and, and are impactful on, on people's properties. So one of the biggest problems with the ways in which we understand risk today is that there's a lot of unknown risk. 
that exist across the country, and there's not a clear and effective way to communicate what that risk is to to property owners. So what I hear you saying is is that while some homes aren't currently in high-risk areas, they might be at some point as global warming extends the reach of these climate disasters. So there's not a, a real way to necessarily account for future climate risks at this point. Is that right? That, that's right. And, and sort of the caveat to that is there are a lot of homes that are at high risk today that don't know that they're at risk. They don't really understand based on the current risk models uh, that exist that they have, for instance, flood risk. One of the, one of the things that we've dug into uh, is property valuation as homes are zoned into new, into new flood zones. And you see immediately there's a 3 to 4% property discount as homeowners have to take on the added home ownership burden of of buying insurance and protecting that home and the awareness around it flooding. So as as risk changes, uh, some properties become that, that had unknown risk, uh, all of a sudden understand they have risk. There's an immediate impact on on that property's uh, uh, insurance burden just to protect the home that, that always existed, but the homeowners didn't realize it existed until it was uh, formally uh, uh, zoned into a flood zone. Let's go to our inbox. Hi, my name is Sean Allen. I'm a homeowner in Anaheim, California. I have a home insurance policy, a fire insurance policy, and have had it for four or five years and saw an increase in my insurance premium as well. And now it's made me more price sensitive when it comes to managing contractors. Insurance has gone up about 66% this year alone. At this rate, if it continues to go up in the future, I'll probably have to sell and rent or I'm not sure what. So it'd be nice if something could be done to stop the increases. Kemi, many of the states with the biggest increases in their premiums are in the West. Oregon, Colorado, Washington, and Utah were all in the top 10 on the list of states with rising insurance prices. How sustainable is this for this part of the country? We know that risk with respect to wildfire is increasing, as with all other natural hazards, in terms of duration, severity, frequency, and how intense these fires are becoming and increasingly impacting urban areas, spreading into neighborhoods and communities. So in terms of insurance and the sustainability, I think it's important to note that insurance is the canary in the coal mine. They are reflecting the risk that is on the ground already. So I think in terms of how sustainable this is, it's just an incredibly complex, wicked issue we're challenging. And response levels are going to be needed from the individual homeowners to insurance companies to political decision makers at state, regional, and congressional level. We got this question from Rodney who asks, regarding homeowners insurance, you said owners are being turned away. I'm curious to know why this type of insurance is not obligatory. I thought this was a requirement by the mortgage company. Roy, what can you tell us? So the the insurance is a requirement often of your mortgage company, and that's why this insurer of last resort is available. So when you have a mortgage, and frankly, even if you don't, you still need this insurance, you have the option to go shop out in the marketplace. And depending on the state you're in, there might be 50 insurers. There might be even in a large state out west, 180 insurers that um, are competing for your business. Uh, this because mortgage companies others require insurance. That's why this insurer of last resort piece comes in. But even with the insurer of last resort, that insurer may not cover the total cost if your home is is damaged or, or destroyed. Right? 
That is somewhat true. I, I would nuance it just a slight bit, which is to say they're going to provide you enough cover uh, for the value of the structure in rebuilding. But there may be elements, we see this in hurricane-prone areas, by which there is a deductible uh, that may be a percentage of the claim. It could be 10 or even 20%. So it's not that you won't be able to get the cover uh, it will just get packaged in a way that uh, may not be your first preference. It may be more difficult for people with lower incomes. We'll get into that after the break. If you're worried your home might be in a disaster-prone area, there's a website for that. We talk about how it works and how you can use the information to protect yourself and your property. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Made in supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Made in makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Made in Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. We're discussing what living in high climate disaster risk communities means for the cost of homeowners insurance. Jeremy, your organization created a tool called Risk Factor, and this is where homeowners can look up their properties and see their home's climate risk. How does it work? Our organization at the First Street Foundation is really focused on the communication of the science around climate risk that that already exists at FEMA, already exists at the Forest Service, uh, at the National Weather Service. They're doing tremendous work along with other academics, but a lot of this work is getting trapped in the scientific journals and it's not accessible to individuals. So what we've done is we've distilled that information down in a way that makes it easy to access, easy to digest, and easy to understand so people can understand both their risk today and their risk into the future. To use the tool, you'd simply log into riskfactor.com, uh, type in your address, and our, our goal is really at the, at, the, at, at the foundation is to quantify and communicate this risk in a way that democratizes the data. So we want to make sure everybody has access to it. Anyone that logs on can claim their home for free and understand all of the different climate hazard uh, risk associated with their personal properties. So cur- currently we have flood, wildfire, heat, and wind uh, risk, and then a bunch of metrics uh, around each one of those that, that has to do with the expectation of depths of water or the likelihood of fire reaching the property or some of the protection mechanisms that people can use, like clearing defensible space uh, around their home. So there, there's information both in regard to your current risk, your future risk, but also in regard to what you can do to protect yourself. Is this a tool people can use if they've identified a home they're perhaps thinking about buying? Um, yeah, you, you can claim one free property on the site, but the, the data is also integrated into into some popular uh, um, uh, tools that people are using when they're on the market. So Realtor.com is including it in their environment section, and Redfin.com also includes it. So people are certainly... Uh, looking at this information as they go to buy homes. And if you look at places that are really being impacted, 
uh, you're starting to see, uh, for instance, in, in Florida, people are, people are starting to look at their flood scores and people are not necessarily moving from Florida, but they're looking for homes within the same neighborhoods or within the same relative geographic area that have lower flood scores. So they, it's certainly something that people are using and in, in, in starting to use more often in that, that decision-making process. Well, we'll make sure to include the link to the risk factor tool on our website in case you want to look up the environmental risks for your home. You can find it at the 1A.org. We got this email from Renee. We moved from a wonderful home in Cedar Key, Florida, about 18 months ago. Our seawall had become useless over the past few years, and we were tired of having the Gulf of Mexico flooding our backyard every time the moon was full. The stress from hurricanes and hurricane warnings was a daily issue from June through December. Hurricane insurance was unaffordable. It's only going to get worse. Kimmy, you've worked on the ground in high climate risk communities. How have you worked with them to prepare for a life of increasingly inevitable weather events. Yeah, so we know that communities, local leaders on the ground are recognizing these risks and they're taking action quicker than federal inertia and policy is really allowing at this time. And so I think understanding that these risks are increasing, for example, we know wildfire severity has gone up 700% since 1985 alone. We also know, as I noted earlier, that they're getting much bigger, they're lasting a lot longer. So community leaders, they see this, they know this, and those who want to take action are doing things about how they can thoughtfully, deliberately, and proactively invest now in planning, preparing, and building these homes and neighborhoods with increasing risk in mind. So it's an upfront investment, essentially, understanding that it will have long-term benefits in the long run. We know out of FEMA and National Institute of Building and Sciences from a 2019 report that for every dollar we spend in upfront mitigation yields $4 back in long-term savings. So these impacts that we are sitting here talking on the phone and in this interview about are being experienced, felt, and responded to at the local level. And it is the communities that are stepping up to take action against these increasing risks in a way that federal policy has yet to respond to. Roy, you were the Deputy Associate Administrator for Insurance and Mitigation at FEMA up until 2018. You helped update the National Flood Insurance Program to benefit policyholders. First, what does FEMA's flood insurance program do? Yes. So we were talking about insurers of last resort uh, on wind and and fire. Uh, I was had the privilege of leading uh, that program, the National Flood Insurance Program at FEMA for a number of years. It is the insurer of last resort on flood, uh, really going back for the last uh, 50 years. What's unique about FEMA's role is they have a three-pronged approach. One is they identify the risk, uh, particularly that, that hazard elements that I think uh, First Street and others uh, probably make far more accessible to uh, folks, but they produce a whole bunch of core data on flood, hazard, and risk. Secondly, they then use that information so that communities are doing land use planning inside their community. They call that floodplain management. And then the third element is they make insurance available. And it's available across the country. Um, No one can be turned down uh, from that with the small exception related to some coastal barrier areas. And 
But it's just a base product. It's only $250,000 worth of coverage, and many people have homes that are worth um, more than that. And the pricing used to be heavily subsidized, and there's a movement that they're a couple of years into at FEMA uh, so that the prices reflect the risk. And this plays across the country. Explain what that means, that the price reflects the risk. Yeah, so... um, Insurers like to use fancy terms like actuarial tables and underwriting, Um, but using historic information as well as projections of what kind of weather or uh, or ills that Mother Nature may send your way. There's a projection about what an expected loss could be. And so someone who lives right next to a, a creek Um, would pay a higher rate for their insurance than someone who is elevated uh, and away from a flooding source. If you're away from a flooding source, you may only pay five or $600 a year for your uh, flood insurance. Uh, if you're in a low-lying or frequently flooding area, you might see a price, including the ones you heard a little bit earlier, that might be five or $6,000. The, the price needs to reflect the risk. It's and true for the flood insurance program. But frankly, that's the way insurance works in every dimension, whether it's your auto insurance, some drivers are riskier, some cars are more expensive to replace. We have a similar element that plays out on the property side for our homes. I'd like to bring Jeremy in here. Jeremy, you've said that the way FEMA calculates who's within their flood risk zone and therefore who benefits from this program is too narrow. How, why? Well, there, there, there are two dimensions here. Roy, Roy was uh, talking a little bit about the different facets that, that in the different roles of FEMA. One of them is flood zone development. And the flood zone development is a, is a model that Roy could probably speak to uh, better also. But it's, it's focused on the, the, the creation of this one in a hundred year flood zone. But the methodology that's been used to create that zone uh, really creates flood zones that are very well mapped in coastal areas along major river channels, but they tend to neglect smaller smaller waterways and precipitation flooding. So there's, there are dimensions of flooding that aren't captured, but at the same time, there, FEMA just went through this process, uh, as Roy was mentioning, of updating the NFIP program to what's called Risk Rating 2.0 that is, again, as he mentioned, a risk-based approach to understanding flood risk. Prior to that, there were very few variables that went into the metric, uh, of computing the price, but now there 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 are a lot of different metrics, and there's actually an underlying model of risk that's different from the flood zones that we see as the one in a hundred year publicly facing uh, maps. So there there there's a sophisticated risk based model that's used to estimate insurance prices, uh, but the flood zones themselves are narrowly defined as one in a hundred year zones that are. Uh, really, really well mapped on coastal areas and on main, main river channels and not as well mapped in more inland areas. Does any economic or racial inequality show up in the way these zones are calculated, Jeremy? Um, there, there, there is some, um, in, in particular economic disparities. A lot of the uh, flood risk that, that we call unknown risk. If you were to take that risk-based approach versus the FEMA 1 in 100 year zone, you're going to see there's about 1.7 times as many properties at risk of a, of a one in a hundred year flood than what the current FEMA one in a hundred year zone shows, and those tend to be places that are, are are further inland, places that are impacted by smaller waterway flooding, by precipitation flooding, and socioeconomically, the areas like in the Appalachian area are are uh, much more imp- impacted disproportionately so 
more so than some of the other areas in the country in regards to unknown risk. So there you already have economically depressed communities that don't know that they have this type of flood risk. And, you know, in the last, you don't have to Google back too far if you, if you type in, you know, uh, major floods in West Virginia and Kentucky, you'll see four or five that have popped up in the past couple of years that are above that one in a hundred year uh, uh, metric based on the, the, the water level expectations in, in those regions. Well, we reached out to FEMA to ask how they calculate their flood risk zones. Here's part of what they sent us. Quote, it's important for the public to understand what the flood insurance rate maps are and what they are not. They are not predictions of where it will flood and they don't just show where it's flooded in the past. The maps are snapshots in time of risk designed to show minimum standards for floodplain management and the highest risk areas for flood insurance. Flooding events do not follow lines on a map. Where it can rain, it can flood. There is no such thing as a no-risk zone. And in response to criticism that their flood risk maps were too narrow, FEMA says, quote, the agency recognizes that the nation needs more comprehensive, accessible, and easy-to-use information about hazards such as coastal and inland flooding, and is positioning to meet that need through updating the agency's flood mapping capabilities, moving away from the binary view. Uh, Roy, when we talk about that that money that a homeowner may still have to pay, even though they have insurance, whether it's through FEMA or private insurance or a state insurance company, a lot of people don't have that extra cash laying around to subsidize what they may get from the insurance company. How are people managing that? I think that you're speaking to a very real problem that we experience today where what it means to go back after the event costs more. And most folks don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting uh, in a bank account ready to deploy. And so we watched a couple things happen. In one case, if they have the income and they have the resources, uh, they'll uh, take out an additional loan or mortgage on the home. But often what we see after disasters is displacement where folks choose to locate somewhere else where their dollars can uh, meet that need. And I think that that's one of those disparate realities that we see. I don't know that insurance can solve it as much as we have to understand that Mother Nature is um, is bringing more of these kind of disasters our way. And uh, the cost of that climate change is not one that is going to evaporate. Let's go back to our inbox. Here's a message we got from Christine. I live in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I'm a millennial who's hoping to buy a home relatively soon. And Florida's changing climate and the natural disasters are going to affect where I choose to live. Um, I'll be sticking away from the coasts and hopefully away from flood-prone areas. I'm a Florida local. Uh, I'm sad to have to limit my choices like this, but this is a fact of the future. Kamiko, in your work, how are communities squaring this reality with the fact that affordable housing is already scarce and displacement will only exacerbate the shortage? Yeah, I think uh, the what we just heard is very much a reality that we're seeing across the board. And here, how it plays out in the West with respect to wildfires is... It's important to understand that not our, 
only are wildfire risks increasing, but at the same time and concurrent with this are increasing development patterns in wildfire prone areas. And in fact, we know now growth in wildfire risk areas is the fastest growing land use type in the country with more than 44 million homes located in these areas. And that also, when you think about wildfire risk, it's quite ubiquitous here when you account for things like ember cast, which can spread wildfire up to four miles ahead of a wildfire front. So many urban areas that you would think are safe are actually equally exposed to ignition from these embers. In addition to that, we have air quality concerns now. So we have smoke, which is very, very real for folks that live out here in the West. And so I think when you start to balance these converging challenges you have to start thinking, again, very deliberately about proactive investment strategies and how we can start building homes and neighborhoods with these increasing risks in mind. Coming up, homeowners insurance is for after a disaster has occurred. But how should we be building our homes differently to be more resilient? We dig into that question after the break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Measure your end-to-end online performance with powerful website and seller analytics. Get insights on top traffic sources, understand how your reach is growing, and more. Use code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation about what living in high climate disaster risk communities means for the cost of homeowners insurance. Kimmy, your work is specifically around wildfires and calculating the cost of them. But you say there's too much focus on mitigating wildfires and not enough on investing in the people and communities affected by them. What would shifting focus look like? Yeah. And for clarification, it's it's not quite that we're spending so much money on, on what you referenced there. It's that when you look at congressional appropriations, we tend to place a great deal emphasis on hazardous fuels reduction. And what I mean by that is that with wildfires, if you reduce the amount of fuels, and that's primarily forests and all this built up fuel we have in many of our timbered landscapes due to very successful suppression efforts, that that alone will get us out of this wildfire crisis. And there's very, very little investment or upfront funding for built mitigation strategies. And by that, I'm talking about mitigation and risk reduction efforts to homes and structures and neighborhoods located in many of these risk areas. And so we know that mitigating a home, building it with wildfire-resistant materials and using things, as Jeremy referenced, like defensible space, and certainly Roy knows this well, these risk reduction efforts that can be integrated into how homes are designed and constructed can be done quite cost-effectively and are incredibly important when you think about reducing opportunities for homes to burn in some of these risk locations. Well, living in a high-climate risk area is not 
the only reason for rising homeowners insurance prices. Roy, how has inflation and the rising cost of building supplies also contributed to these rising prices? Yeah, I think this is a really essential piece to understand. Uh, Some of us will boast we're quite happy that the value of our home has gone up by 50% over the last five to seven years. We think that this asset we have is valuable. We appreciate that. Well, that means the replacement of it has gone up. And so that means the price needs to move. And then we look at the inflation over the last 16 months that has drawn up the the cost not only of the materials, but also of the labor that is there. And so I do think that Mother Nature is driving quite a bit of this related to the price points, but it's essential to understand that the over all economic realities, some of which we really come to appreciate, particularly when we go to sell our home, are are simply being correlated back. This is the element that goes, you know, risk has a price tag on it. And, you know, in a time by which we're seeing more and more impacts of climate change, we can't say that on one side of our mouth and out of the other go, well, now I want my insurance to be cheaper. Uh, I want the cost to go down. They're correlated, and we've got to bring those pieces together. So there's bigger economic elements, and then there's Mother Nature. And I think the pieces you were just speaking to Kimmy about become really essential because what can an individual do? Well, they have to look at their parcel, at their home, and begin to make investments, some of them quite cost-effective, so that they can reduce their risk, because that will then trickle then through their other pricing. But Jeremy, again, this gets back to that question of who has the financial ability to make the types of improvements on your home that could make it more resilient. And and how, I mean, are there other options or other resources for people who want to make their home resilient, but maybe don't have the ready cash to do so? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, as as Kimiko put out, made the point earlier, some of these are really cost effective. I mean, it's, not, it's something as simple as clearing brush around your property is one of the best uh, ways to sort of mitigate against wildfire risk at the personal property level. The one of the the issues with with the approach of of only taking a personal property approach is that communities are much more effective at a larger scale of of uh, mitigating that risk. And so the, the combination of people understanding their own risk, uh, making adjustments to their property where they can mitigate that risk, but then also communities understanding where most of the risk exists and how to allocate resources to effectively mitigate that risk. There there really has to be a combination of both personal and individual property level uh, mitigation, but then also community mitigation and, and sort of higher level state federal mitigation as well. We got this question from Jay who says, as the climate changes and moisture moves around, areas that get more rain suffer from more flooding and areas that get less rain are at higher risk of wildfires. Tornadoes are popping up in more places. Hailstorms are more frequent and both coasts are getting soaked. Is anywhere safe, according to these insurance companies, and will it stay that way? Roy? Um, we're seeing the impacts of disasters in every state of the union. Uh, I think that the um, the writer of that aptly describes that we're seeing it shift. We're seeing t- tornadoes um, in terms of severity shift a, a bit east. We see the hailstorms that are there. Uh, I don't know that there's any place you can move that escapes it, but I do think in every state there are contexts by which some places are more risky than others. 
but let's make this point. At the point that you're going out to buy a house, you, as one of the earlier writers talked about, you have a choice to make. I really think we've got to realize that 90% of us live in homes and don't have the option just to pick up and move. And that's the place where we've got to really help people with the retrofit. How do they improve the property that they have to better withstand what Mother Nature is going to send their way? Well, we've talked about homeowners using your organization's risk factor tool, Jeremy, to see the environmental risks of their property. How could a tool like this help homeowners who are trying to figure out the best mitigation strategies for where they live? Yeah, well, the, the the points that you made earlier and were sort of echoed just a minute ago indicate that you know there 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 are a lot of different types of climate hazards across the country, and depending on what region you live in, you're more prone to certain types. Certainly, this the past few months in California show you that you know it's not just heat and drought that 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 are issues and wildfire in in California. There's also flooding. There's also snow. So there are other issues there also. But by going onto the site and understanding your specific risk. Then understanding what that risk looks like into the future. We purposefully created future climate projections out 30 years because it is the term of a standard mortgage in, in the U.S. so that people would, could, could attach that to their property and they could understand that during my time of ownership of this property, during the time that you know technically or, or theoretically I have this uh, mortgage attached to the property, this is what my risk looks like and this is how it's going to grow into the future. So you can not only plan for today, but you could also plan for the future. I, I, I shouldn't wait until the risk becomes so bad that uh, you know I, I end up having to deal with the insurance issue to account for uh, um, some of the, the, the damage that occurs. Instead, maybe try to retrofit the house early or try to build that in along the way so that you understand sort of what you're getting into, not only today, but, but in, in a world of a changing climate into the future also. We're hearing from lots of you today. Jill emails, I'm over 65 and no longer own my home. Because I live in Galveston on the Texas Gulf Coast, I'm paying for insurance to cover any losses. The cost is exorbitant, but I'm lucky I can pay it for now. The high cost of homeowner's insurance definitely impacts the cost of purchasing a home here, though. My house is elevated, but I've been told it took on a foot of water during Hurricane Ike. It is my plan not to spend the rest of my days here, as it is too stressful to have the threat of hurricanes hovering over you. We also got this email from Mark who says, I'm a restoration contractor in Central Texas. In the past two years, I've encountered more and more insured customers unaware the policy they have been paying into has zero recoverable depreciation. For a vast majority of them, this essentially makes close to 75% of their total repair bill come out of pocket. Insurers are pushing way too much of the burden onto consumers, and these customers often don't know this until the policy is actually called on for repairs. Roy, if you're a homeowner and you're paying an insurance policy right now, what do you need to know about that fine print? Uh, you need to make sure you understand your insurance policy. Uh, you need to talk with your agent and make sure you know what is covered. Sometimes people make decisions because they want the price to go down a bit and there's trade-offs that go back and forth. What I can tell you is that no one's trying to mislead you, um, but we need clarity because it's a contract with some um, particulars that are in place. The, the writer here talks about the difference between replacement cost versus depreciated actual cost. Both of those might be available to you when you're purchasing your insurance. Make sure you know which one you've chosen. Kimmy, you're a Montana native. You work closely with many of the communities we're talking about. And it's easy for people living in lower climate risk areas to say, 
look, just move. But these places are home to a lot of people. How do you walk that line of recognizing the the emotional and communal attachment people have to a place with the climate risk reality? Yeah. In addition to what you just noted, not only is it home and there's a deep place attachment, but also many people, and you hit on this earlier, may not have the economic disposal or income to be able to freely move out of a high-risk area. And and we certainly need to account for that. Again, I think that there is a tremendous role here for federal-level support and appropriations that can help offset some of these mitigation costs to individual homeowners so that they can pay for these much-needed mitigation measures and risk reduction efforts and things like retrofits, as Jeremy hit on, which is incredibly important when you think about the enormous number of homes that already exist in these high-risk areas. We know regulatory measures like building codes can address new development, but again, retrofit is a significant concern. So when you start thinking about that economic issue exacerbated by the social and cultural attachments to place and living in these increasing risk areas, it's a social contract, I think, that we've all signed into. We know the physics of natural hazards, essentially. We know that Natural hazards are inevitable. They're going to occur as a natural ecological process, but that doesn't necessarily imply that natural disasters have to be. And it's only until homes and people are put in harm's way that a hazard becomes a disaster. So appealing to the social side of things is much more challenging and a complex issue that we have to navigate carefully and thoughtfully. 72% of homeowners between the ages of 18 and 34 expect climate change-related extreme weather to damage their homes in the next 30 years. That's according to a Policy Genius survey from last year. I'd love to hear from each of you, what would you like to see happen either on the individual or community level or at the policy level? Kimmy, I'll start with you. Yeah, what I'd like to see is a, you know, in the rhetoric, we call it a broad social political paradigm shift. And I think that implies a fundamental recognition and understanding that wildfires, other natural hazards are going to happen, but that we can do something about this and we can learn to live alongside them if we think about building smarter, safer, more affordable homes that can meet these risk mitigation measures in places that we know are going to experience these increasing risks. Jeremy? Yeah, very very quickly, we, we believe everybody should be informed of their climate risk, take information from multiple sources, inform themselves, and take steps to protect themselves in the best way possible. And Roy, you get the last word here. Yeah, I think we need to nudge people who can afford to do it to take the action. It's not just about upgrading the granite countertops in your kitchen. It's about improving the resilience of your home. And for those who can't afford, we'll turn to the grants to help them. That's Roy Wright. He's the president and CEO of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, a nonprofit scientific research organization. He's also a former FEMA official. Also with us today, Kamiko Barrett. She's a research and policy analyst at Headwater Economics, a nonprofit research group working to improve community development and land management decisions. And Jeremy Porter. He's the head of climate implications at the First Street Foundation. That's an organization focused on defining climate risk. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Linda Mood Bell. Linda Mood Bell Summer Instruction for Reading, Comprehension, and Math can help students catch up or get ahead. Summer Instruction is designed to help children feel more confident, prepared, and excited about learning and school in the fall. Linda Mood Bell's evidence-based approach is individualized for all types of students with challenges that affect learning, including dyslexia. Learn more at lindamoodbell.com/npr. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.